This is the Nietzsche Podcast. So I got so many Q&A questions when I asked for them this last time. And some of the questions were very in-depth and wanted detailed answers that I'm going to have to split up the number of episodes in which I answer all of them. So this is just the first half of the most recent crop of Q&A questions. So the next one, Q&A 7, I'll cover the same, you know, round of questions that I asked the community for. It's just I can't answer them all in one episode. Um, That's why it's taken me so long to get this out, because it was so daunting. So forgive me for that, but... I also have a lot of really interesting content coming out soon that I think all of you will like. So without further ado, uh, let's have Q&A number six. Thank you all for joining me. Thank you for your questions. Uh, Love you guys. From Innate Poetry. Are there any plans to do a full multiple episode series on the gay science? That's one of my favorite books by Nietzsche. I see that book as his In Rainbows by Radiohead. Thanks. After this season's over, I will do another book analysis or book club, whatever we want to call it. So last time was Birth of Tragedy. Um, I haven't decided on what the next one is going to be. It's kind of between Beyond Good and Evil and the Gay Science, honestly. So that's why I bring that up, because I'll probably for sure do that one. I just can't tell you exactly when. <laughs> but um, as to whether or not that's uh, Nietzsche's in, radi- or in Rainbows by Radiohead, um, I don't know what you mean by that exactly, because In Rainbows is not the best Radiohead album. Is that like the consensus these days? Because that's crazy to me as somebody who like listened to Radiohead for years before that album even came out right um back in the day we all said like okay computer we would have said like okay computer was nietzsche's gay science right or that was his okay computer or for some people it's kid a so yeah that's that's the thing that's weird um about saying that because radiohead has so many distinctive albums that so many people feel strongly about um and my opinion on my favorite radiohead album might surprise you and it might cause serious controversy so i'm not actually going to say which one it is but maybe you just mean that it's like his in rainbows that you think they have the same style or mood or something like that. Um, I've never thought about that, but I'll listen to in rainbows and read some of the poems from the gay science tonight and uh, find out if I agree. From waifu Stan. Maybe you've already answered this, but how has Nietzsche's philosophy influenced present day philosophers? It seems like my professors complain about the same things Nietzsche did when regarding the academic realm of philosophy. I don't love you, but let's be fair here. I love you. Thank you, Waifu Stan, for that question. Um, And, you know, thank you. I love you, too, and don't love you at the same time. To what extent does Nietzsche influence other philosophers or modern philosophers? Well, I mean, even though there was a period with like Bertrand Russell and Wittgenstein and then the whole analytic turn and sort of the state that Western philosophy was in first half of the 20th century where Nietzsche tended to be ignored, he influenced so many very um, impactful minds throughout the 20th century, nevertheless, sometimes in countercurrent to the 
um, current position of academia or what, you know, just the philosophers were thinking about, but sometimes even with figures who became rather mainstream and influential. I mean, just to go down the list, he influenced Heidegger, he influenced Foucault, he influenced Derrida, Deleuze, Guattari, um, people like Emma Goldman, um, people such as uh, Ernst Jünger or uh, Oswald Spangler. I mean, across the political spectrum in terms of political philosophy, and then with people with the most divergent views of reality itself, right? Influencing people from Carl Jung to um, somebody like, you know, Deleuze or Derrida. Um, Nietzsche, in some sense, is like all-pervading in the influence that he has had over the course of Western philosophy. And I think that, yes, that does trickle into the modern age. The problem, well, it's multifaceted, right? So for one thing, uh, Nietzsche, the totality of Nietzsche's ideas is rarely presented accurately. I'll say that first. And I know that's kind of a difficult claim to make because it sort of suggests that I have access to like this perfect interpretation of Nietzsche and I'm measuring my, all the scholarly interpretations against my own and just saying I'm right, they're wrong. But I would say if you, if you want an explanation for why the fact that Nietzsche's influence is all pervasive and yet the same things that Nietzsche criticized about scholars could perhaps be applicable to scholars today, right? That uh, they all are digging away in their own little mind shafts of a specialization and they're not um, actually providing what he thinks, you know, the goal of the sciences ought to be, which is a world picture. You're not actually getting any closer to understanding life or, our position in life in the world and how we're supposed to act in the world, or you're not getting an education in those practical either. It's funny because it's like you could classify it either as like the highest, most metaphysical concerns or the most down to earth practical concerns. But you could say in matters of values, right? I think Nietzsche would say um, as it's taught and as it's expressed within the structure of our bloated university faculties and the specialties within specialties within specialties and the over excess of administrators to manage the entire thing. Um, I think he's correct to some extent that there's very little in academia in the actual work of academia that involves actually taking a step back and looking at the entire picture Nietzsche says not just examining a single stroke of paint, but taking a step back and being able to actually even enjoy the whole um, picture. And things like producing a world picture of reality. I mean, come on, most people, when they go to university these days, they'll be educated by a bunch of post-structuralist professors who will tell them that no such thing exists, right? In spite of the fact that everyone sort of has a world picture and is constructing one and ha is having to act according to one, um, and I would argue that that's not just like practically implied by their actions. I think we are all actively doing this. People do have some sense that they understand what the world is and what their place in it is. Even if that's, you know, a dead scientific materialistic universe, even if that's just something that they've taken on faith from a religion, even if it's just like practical common sense considerations, right, of 
well, this is what's in front of me and this is what I'm going to go with. Um, everyone has some sort of conception of who they are and what they're doing here, right? Um, so you can't get away from it. Um, anyway, kind of a tangent. I, I guess uh, that's just me sort of like giving giving the case for there actually being a place for philosophy in everyone's lives and uh, the fact that we all kind of do philosophy to some extent and um, that if, therefore philosophical education is valuable. And I guess that's sort of the problem, right, is that Nietzsche thinks that the structure of academia, the incentives of academia have produced a bunch of people who are not themselves philosophical or that the actual content of philosophical thought or the pursuit of um, philosophical questions doesn't actually correspond or map onto the activities of academia, the capital of academia, right? That even if they quote unquote are still philosophical in their personal lives that your average philosophy done, that's not his job description, right? And that's sort of the big tragedy of it all. And then you might think, well, so how could it be that Nietzsche makes this criticism about scholars in his own time and then a hundred years later, um, the state of affairs is more or less the same? Uh, well, then it must be that the people, if Nietzsche is indeed all pervasive throughout the philosophy departments of the West, then they must not have either read Nietzsche sufficiently and understood him or they've rejected him to some extent. And that's very possible. And I think actually... So it's a combination of the two, right? On the one hand, I think it's very rare for people to get, they either get the, you know, blow by blow of the big ideas of Nietzsche. So they get the death of God, eternal recurrence, the overman, the will to power. Maybe they might get something about the master and slave morality. If you take, you know, a philosophy course or an ethics course, and then you might get something about, you know, uh, uh, the birth of tragedy stuff about Apollo and Dionysus in a very simplified form, because that's like interesting and easy for people to provide it, it images. It's a very artistic book, right? It's very fun. Um, but even that book, you know, if you just do a blow by blow analysis of the main concepts, it's very hard to convey just how complex and difficult that book is and how many layers there are to what Nietzsche is saying at birth of tragedy. So, and that's how all his books are, right? So none of those ideas in Nietzsche are just, meant to exist on their own in spite of what some people have maybe suggested that these aphoristic ideas and this anti-systemic and anti-systematic structure of Nietzsche's thought means you can just kind of treat it like a salad bar and take or leave it. I mean, the truth is you can take anyone's book like a salad bar and take or leave whatever ideas you want. But the fact of the matter is do all these ideas constellate in Nietzsche's philosophy to actually mean something in relation to one another and is, is there greater meaning in each of these concepts when you comprehend it in light of the whole? Yes. Um, so I think to some extent maybe that's why is that, yeah, Nietzsche is very influential, but how many people actually look at the totality of his ideas all in relation to one another? That's a lot of what I'm trying to do on this podcast. And then the other thing is he influenced a lot of people, but a lot of people just reject Nietzsche. You get to a certain point where you're like, uh, I'm not supposed to think this thought, right? You consciously repress those thoughts that you start to feel are immoral, which is the exact thing that Nietzsche talks about in his work, right? Um, and then at a certain point, you you turn back. You you come down from the mountain pass, right? And I think that's what a lot of people, they, they do get something out of Nietzsche, but 
um, at a certain point you turn back. And fair enough, because I think some of the implications of Nietzsche's ideas, if you carried them through to their ultimate conclusions, would lead to some outcomes that could be quite horrendous, or, or might even create a world that would be ugly to me. It would be a way I could put it in maybe amoral terms. Um, and that that's only, we have to ask at that point, like which Nietzsche, right? Because he, his thought changed throughout his career. And I think there are times at which Nietzsche, you know, when he's more conciliatory towards the idea that we need our beautiful illusions, we might even need our moral illusions, or at least most people do. And perhaps that's what's so terrifying about the death of God idea is that the main source of the, that illusory metaphysical comfort is going away now. Um, the thing is that to actually take something like that seriously and really um, tangle with it, um, I don't know. I mean, it definitely does seem, I guess, just to end on this note, like if you did take that thought seriously, that we we're going to have this um, cataclysmic crisis of values, would you really, you know, study normative uh, ethics for like 30 years and put together all these like logic puzzles where you're doing philosophy in the form of mathematical equations and trying to prove that, you know, moral facts exists or whatever it is that like a lot of the really specialized academic philosophers do. And um, just kind of like writing these essays full of shibboleths to show that you know what you're talking about. Um, I don't know. I, I, maybe I'm being as, as an outsider, I'm, I don't have like a proper perspective on what academic philosophy is or what they do. You can maybe make that argument, but oftentimes I find when I read like reviews, um, from websites of, uh, you know, major philosophy review, you know, journals or people at like some university, writer is like reviewing some university book, right? It does seem rather detached from life, <laughs> to put it in one word. Okay, so congratulations to Waifu Stan. You're the first question to get me to ramble for a little bit. From Maneki Hater. I think if Nietzsche's philosophy were to be taken to the extreme, it would be the philosophy of the adrenaline junkie. Nietzsche is all about overcoming and walking the extra mile just because. And if you take the idea of overcoming to the extreme, it becomes the idea of just do it. You only live once, etc. Do you agree? Yeah, kind of. I kind of agree. I mean, I think that I wouldn't ever phrase it as the philosophy of the adrenaline junkie, though, because adrenaline to me wouldn't be the point. I mean, when I think about like an adrenaline junkie, I imagine somebody who has like a dependency on like continuously exposing themselves to dangerous situations so that they can get an adrenaline rush. And like this literally describes some people, by the way, there are some people who they find that when they're, you know, rocketing down the side of a mountain on a snowboard and, you know, they almost like fly into a tree that that gives them a real rush. Right. And then they try skydiving and they try, um, things like, you know, 
mountain climbing in the Alps and they try paragliding and they try, you know, any number of these things. Like there's all these rumors about Tom Cruise, right? That a lot of what he does in his movies where he does all of his own stunts are just the fact that he's over the years gotten to do so many like exhilarating, like adrenaline junkie activities in doing these stunts. And he always in like the mission impossible movies does crazier and crazier stunts every time that are actually life threatening. That's kind of like a, it's a meme at this point, right? That Tom Cruise has a death wish, but so I don't know if that's what I would classify Nietzsche's philosophy as being like, because it's not just adrenaline for the sake of adrenaline. Um, when he says live dangerously, build your temple on the slopes of Mount Vesuvius, um, you know, or the other really famous aphorism from the military school of life, that which does not kill me makes me stronger. Um, one of the most commonly quoted things of Nietzsche, right? would seem to sort of imply like, yeah, it's just about throwing yourself into danger, throw yourself into harm's way. And I think, I don't want to downplay that, right? Because we're in such a culture of safety and comfort that I'm not going to be the one to tell you that's bad um, or be another voice, you know, bring in the voice of the majority that says, oh, you really shouldn't take that risk and play it safe, right? But what I will tell you is, when I think back throughout my life, the times when I've done things just solely for the sake of adrenaline, like just to do them, just to expose myself to danger, just put myself into the into harm's way just because, that was when I was really young and really stupid for the most part. And when I look back on that, I'm kind of like embarrassed a lot of the time where it was just sort of a pointless risk. And so I think that's sort of contains by implication, my answer, right? Your risks that you take should have a point to them. And I've kind of done that in my life with, I mean, there's nothing like the musician's life for, you know, basically living on the edge, right? In terms of, um, I'm betting all of my, what would you say? All my life's energy, right? All of this time and effort that I'm devoting to making music and on top of that, going going on tour is a crazy thing to do. You're putting like four or five or sometimes six people into a van packed full of like expensive and valuable stuff. And then, you know, you're all broke and poor musicians. So nobody has any disposable income, right? But you have to get enough to like print up merchandise. You have to get up enough disposable income to like actually have a working vehicle and you have to be able to take the time off. Um, so it's an immense store of like energy, right. Of capital of resources that you've acquired that you're like sacrificing to the, to this project. You're not just sacrificing it just to sacrifice it. It's all towards this goal. And then when you go out and do it, it's like, you drive all day and all night a lot of the time. Um, sometimes six, eight hours a day. You sleep in a different place every night. You um, are oftentimes, you know, making these really tight schedules. And that in and of itself is dangerous because, you know, I toured in a Ford 15 seat passenger van for years and years and years. And when those things flip, especially if you're not wearing a seatbelt, um, 
you have like a 90% chance that you're going to die. They're actually super unsafe, um, in, in many respects. Um, and so it's like, you're exposing yourself to risk and you're spending your resources and your energy. But I think you should do that with a goal in mind, some sort of higher goal that's going to like better yourself or that is fulfilling in some way. And for some people, it is the adrenaline thing thing. I mean, you look at somebody like Alex Honnold, right? Um, that is like thrill seeking. He, he is a thrill seeker extraordinaire, right? And he's talked about it, that there's nothing like that feeling. And a large part of that is the adrenaline. But you notice it's like, is he great just because he's like, I mean, you know, it's like the difference between him and like the guys in jackass, right? <laughs> Exposing themselves to harm or like doing things that might spike your adrenaline, but there's no like real point or meaning to it. And often it's really just sort of like profane and vulgar versus like I, Alex Honnold can say, I climb mountains with my bare hands and nothing to catch me. And that's, um, I mean, again, I guess you could say even climbing the mountain has no point to it. But for whatever reason, maybe it's just the artist's foolishness or our way of deceiving ourselves. Um, the man who can say he climbed that mountain with his bare hands has in some sense, tr he represents something to us that has transcended the limits of his humanity. Whereas somebody like Johnny Knoxville, who's like, I've gotten hit in the nuts a million times and pepper sprayed and all these things. We say you've sort of like almost, you've also gone beyond the limits of humanity, but in a way that's like denigrating to it almost. Right. And it's not really a rational principle. It's something more like along the lines of will to power, right? Um, self overcoming versus I don't know what, um, you know, but that's, what's important to me. Um, personally, that's what I get at Nietzsche's philosophy. And I think a lot of times there are so many people like, yes, you should live dangerously, by the way. Um, I don't want that to get lost in, in this. There are so many people who are out there spending their lives like waiting for something to happen that will give them permission to like follow a dream they have or do something that they want to do. That will never come. Or it comes very rarely. And usually it only comes to the people. Usually if it comes to you, you don't have the ability to capitalize on it. And if you do have the ability to capitalize on it, it's because you've been like grinding and making it possible, right? So don't wait. Um, it's what does Alan Watts say? Better to have a short life full of things you love doing than a long life spent in a miserable way. Um, and your life might not literally be shortened, right? Lots of people live dangerously and it's like they don't actually end up shorten, shortening their lives because in many ways human beings are actually anti-fragile and the more harm and danger and risk you expose us to, the stronger we get. Um, it's not everyone, but people actually have that capacity and you have that capacity. So it's not, you know, it's not like you have to find, a, I'm saying find a hill to climb and you, you don't necessarily have to die on it, but if you spend your whole life trying to figure out ways not to die, <laughs> you're going to have a miserable life and then you'll die anyway. So it's not worth it. It's not worth it to wait. Don't forestall anything. Um, chase down your happiness and um, figure out what that is. And don't wait. Um, 
do the dangerous thing. Spend your resources for something that you love. Expend yourself, spend your life, spend yourself. And if that's, you know, jumping out of planes or climbing mountains or whatever, go do that. But find your thing. That's, I mean, that's, so when I said it should have a point, that's the point it should have. It should give you happiness. Um, so, and, you know, at the end of saying all this, maybe some people will find it inspirational. Um, I kind of have the impression of like, I don't know if I've really said anything. It's like seek happiness. I mean, everyone seeks happiness. Then again, do they? You know, it's like that quote from, who's it, T.S. Eliot? Most men lead lives of quiet desperation. There's a lot of people doing that. So my advice to you is don't. From Langenberry Legal 7694. I asked it on Spotify. I'll ask it again here just in case. Even with his positions on nobility, hierarchy, etc., Nietzsche lived poor and out of sight. If possible, it could be interesting to talk about having these positions and beliefs in modern times and living up to them. Yes, so Nietzsche, you know, he's sort of low on the hierarchy, right? I mean, he's not at the very bottom. He's just sort of placed himself outside of most of the action. He's definitely not trying to climb to the top. And he's, as you point out, he's relatively poor. I mean, he's got a generous pension, but he's still living as a pensioner. He's on a fixed income, right? Fixed income says it all, right? He's not no real chance to advance himself in terms of monetary wealth or social status. And he lives this existence where he's willfully put himself in sort of the edges of society, living the semi-hermit lifestyle and, you know, no longer even striving for academic greatness within the academy. And, you know, maybe we wouldn't blame Nietzsche for this. He's kind of a sickly guy and it doesn't really seem like, you know, for the if you're walking around and the light just hurts your eyes, it's going to be probably hard for you to like go command states and like lead people into warfare. I mean, when Nietzsche climbed on a horse during his uh, military training that we talked about during the Christmas special, right? He fell off and like injured himself so badly he was discharged. So not, and this ties into another thing then, right? So Nietzsche sort of respects the reality of the hierarchy in human social life he recognizes it as like a brute reality. And so therefore, it's something you have to accept. And everything that you have to accept is reality, right? You should call it good. You should learn, you should understand what the value in it is, what the significance of it is, because it's an unchangeable fact. And calling it bad and evil um, isn't going to be of any use to anyone, least of all yourself, right? So, um, Nietzsche has that attitude in spite of being a person that doesn't actually climb the hierarchy very successfully and probably didn't even possess the means to. And then also, he has this view that the physical world is primary or in terms of that our physiology is really where the action is, so to speak. That's what's effective. And our conscious life, our ideas, our ideations are sort of a surface or skin. It's a gloss. He uses all of this sort of language to call it superficial, right? It's our shine that we put on reality. That's, you know, the whole realm of ideas. Well, Nietzsche's a philosopher, right? So why is he writing these books? Um, if ideas are just a surface and skin upon a purely physical world that is, you know, this 
these forces and plays of forces that are in conflict and struggle with one another. And the question is of expressing power in the physical sense, in the physical world. Nietzsche does it in this ideational sense, we might say. Um, And so to me, in a way, it's the same issue, right? Because we could say that Nietzsche is the guy who argued against hinterlands, but by the very nature of arguing his point, right? That is up in the hinterland of logical abstraction and discourse as the thing that moves the world, that drives history. If physical conditions, we might say, and the vitality of the various organisms and competitors within the physical world are actually the thing that drives history, and ideas are like a second order effect or in surface and skin upon this reality, then your philosophical argument against hinterlands takes place in a hinterland. And I'm here, I'm using the the term from, it's translated various ways, and thus spoke Zarathustra. He's talking about of the afterworldsman, I believe is how Kaufman translates it. Um, the, you know, we don't, he, what he's trying to convey is this mix of talking about the uh, the backwoodsman, but in the sense of somebody who's wandering in what we would call the hinterlands, what the Germans would call the hinterlands as well, um, off in the wilderness away from, you know, where the actual action is down in society, right? I don't know if that's like a really good description, but basically conflating that with heaven, right? Heaven is the hint, is a hinterland. Um, it's just a way of talking about it um, to sort of d- distinguish certain types of thought from others. But I mean, in a way, that's sort of the problem, right? Is that the fact that you could have thought that doesn't take place in a hinterland, but then all ideas are just a surface and skin on reality, just a conscious gloss. Those two ideas don't really go together. It's all hinterlands all the way down, right? The philosophy is entirely a like post hoc narration upon the physical and political power struggles that are going on. And, you know, Nietzsche's position would be that blaming someone like Voltaire or Rousseau for the French Revolution is very silly because clearly both of those are just symptoms of the underlying, what would you say, the underlying forces that are playing themselves out in society that were inevitable either way. And so it raises a serious question as to what exactly Nietzsche is doing when he's writing philosophy? Why is he putting the body over the mind when he's somebody with a very sickly body who has this condition where he's got stomach problems all his life and he's throwing up and he's got terrible eyesight. You know, the light hurts his eyes. It's like, he's the most unphysically fit person you could imagine. And he is extolling sort of fitness and health in a physical sense as this great measure of, you know, uh, the value of, of, uh, life. Right. And so in a similar way, he's talking about, um, you know, the people who are at the top of the dominance hierarchy in society, the aristocracy as being the meaning of society itself. And yet Nietzsche couldn't possibly fit into that category. 
So, you know, you have them as the basically, so let me boil this down into even simpler terms that are actually oversimplified and don't quote me on this because um, it's a very bad description if somebody doesn't already have all the nuance, but it's basically like Nietzsche is the philosopher who denigrates philosophers and extols warriors, but he's the most unwarrior-like man ever, right? He praises the warrior aristocracy. He is neither an aristocrat nor a warrior. He's a philosopher. The thing that he says, you know, he reminds us that the Greeks regarded philosophical thought as useless. That was their word for a wise person in the philosophical sense. And in so many ways, he's trying to like resurrect the Greek spirit, right? So is he trying to resurrect the notion that what he himself does is useless knowledge? And I don't know if I have an answer to you about that whole paradox. I've, I'm still kind of puzzling over it myself. On some level, I think it doesn't have to be a problem unless you make it one, right? Um, there's no reason that Nietzsche needs to be logically consistent <laughs> in what he's talking about. It may just have been that maybe he was correct about the fundamental character of life, and he just happened to be the only one smart enough to perceive that. And if it's a little contradictory the way fate washed out then i suppose it is but life isn't always neatly explicable right that's your conscious gloss wanting to make sense of that reality but if that seems like something of a cop-out i guess i could just say i think nietzsche did whether i think at times he began to express something which was an understanding of something like you might call greatness which was beyond like this warrior ethos that he began to think more of nobility of the spirit. And, you know, you could talk about like, well, where, where, where did he land in his mature philosophy? Right. But even at no point in Nietzsche's career is he entirely, you know, ironclad consistent with all of his ideas. And that includes his later period. And I think to some extent, Nietzsche, because of his understanding of things like sublimation and how will to power doesn't actually have to manifest in terms of physical combat and domination. Um, he understood what he was doing as, in some sense, exercising his power over the world in, an, in another way, which does imply that there's some value to the ideational realm, right? That there could be something like a nobility of spirit um, that maybe he thought he qualified for. Um, and that also we have to remember a lot of Nietzsche's philosophy is not very much about him being, you know, it's not Nietzsche writing himself as the overman. He writes himself as the prophet of the overman. He doesn't say we're going to become overmen. He says, let's clear the ground for them. He doesn't say I'm the most, Zarathustra doesn't say I'm the most virtuous. He says, I, I'm going to bestow virtue on you. From alternative slide 62. Do you think that the modern societies of the world has gotten any aspect of Nietzsche's philosophy accurately in regards to how we live, think, create art, etc. If you think yes, examples would be cool. Keep up the great work. This is funny because I feel it, it dovetails kind of off the end of that last question because Nietzsche is trying to give us something, right? He's trying to give us virtue. He's trying to give us new states of mind, new ways of thinking about the world, new ways of thinking about our experience. And the hope would be that with a new state of mind, you could actually change 
the way that you think about things, change the way that you live, change your life in some sense, right? And so that sort of implies that Nietzsche could have given us a way to live or a philosophy that would manifest in the physical world in some way, and thus people who read Nietzsche would be able to implement his philosophy in the world in some sense. Um, and that seems to be like what you're asking about. But I don't think, because of the way you phrased the question, right, have they accurately represented the way Nietzsche thought? I really don't think that any nation or like significant group of individuals or any institutions or I, I don't know. I don't know that there's any like groups that have taken the way that Nietzsche's thought uh, and like implemented that as a way to live on any sort of grand scale. Um, like I, I, I guess what I'm saying is like, I don't think it's like, Oh, they inaccurately are representing Nietzsche's ideas. I mean, I, I don't think really any polities out there really care about Nietzsche's ideas for just being bluntly honest. Um, I mean, I guess you could say like, again, I mentioned earlier, the Nazis have tried to appropriate his ideas. Right. But I mean, I think everyone knows at this point that that was like, a, a, like just gross distortion, um, of what Nietzsche thought that they just completely, um, cherry picked a couple phrases and then completely ignored like the broader strokes of like what he thought in favor of just basically, which is what they did to all German writers, right? And uh, people of their sort of like, they felt to be of their national ethnic character that they go could go and say, these are all our great men. And lo, look, they all agreed with us, right? But I don't know, in any case, so it's like, I don't really think anyone could make the argument that it was like a regime based on a bad reading of Nietzsche. It was like, they had their own agenda and then they went back in time and tried to like appropriate all these figures to, to suit that agenda. And with Nietzsche, it just particularly was useful because, you know, people went into world war one in the trenches with thus spoke Zarathustra and their backpacks, you know, um, sort of inspiration to go th live dangerously, like throw themselves into, into danger, right. Live as adrenaline junkies, right. Um, you really want to be an adrenaline junkie? Don't go skydiving. Go, uh, go to the Somme, right? <laughs> go to Verdun. Um, so, you know, I would say, I, I guess that points to was that a an accurate um, interpretation of Nietzsche's ideas? And again, it's like the problem with answering these questions is like anytime you get into these prescriptive universal statements, it's like it doesn't really apply to Nietzsche. So anything I'm saying, it's like he would never say that's the only way of doing it. And that in some sense, you know, so like living dangerously is the only way to live dangerously to go throw yourself into World War One. No. So were the people who were going into World War One, reading Thus Spoke Zarathustra, reading Nietzsche correctly or incorrectly? Well, maybe some of them were, maybe some of them weren't, right? Was the war itself inspired by Nietzsche, the people making the decisions, right? Was Kaiser Wilhelm reading Nietzsche? And he's like, oh, yes, we really should, uh, you know, sharpen our sabers and temper ourselves in the fires of war so that we don't become decadent, my brothers. No, I don't think that's really what it was. It was you had a geopolitical struggle in much the same ways that Thucydides describes the Peloponnesian War, where 
you had a bunch of great powers who could not knuckle under to one another. Um, because if they break their treaty, their mutual defense pact with their ally to avoid incurring the wrath of this other great power, then you will be subordinating yourself to them. So that's unacceptable, right? And so in a way, it's, it's funny, you could say all geopolitics is following Nietzsche. If you believe Nietzsche's descriptive view of how life and power works, because that's exactly how you would expect them to behave in a Nietzschean world, the world that he describes, because Nietzsche thinks he's describing the world, right? <laughs> Obviously, but um, not everyone agrees. But I would just say the way a lot of these um, World War One is actually like a great example of these intractable, mutually exclusive um, values or goals or, or quote unquote, good versions of good according to the positions of the people making those assessments, right? From their perspective, based on who and what they are, um, Germany is driven to a set of, you know, alliances and a set of commitments. Britain and France and Russia are driven to a set of alliances and commitments. Those clash, you get World War One, right? Um, that it's not... And it's very, that's the thing is like, we have such a moral understanding of World War II because that was, that's a good versus evil war. World War I is much more useful to think about then because it's so far away and so like much blurrier in most people's imagination as to what the causes of the war were or what ha actually happened during World War I, um, that it seems more like an amoral war, right? Or like a war where there was very little moral idealism. I mean, there was to some extent, I mean, like the British are stepping in to save the Belgians and um, the Dutch and the French, right? I think the Dutch in that war. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and, and sort of posturing and of like, you have no right to attack a sovereign country, but it's just like, you know, you, you look throughout the entire history of humankind. Um, that's always what's happening is people are sovereign countries are getting invaded and attacked. That's just sort of like the reality is that your resources are only yours so long as you can hold them and um, you can moralize about it, but you know, people are going to take what they can take. Right. And that's what we see happening. So, um, you know, you could say in some sense, everyone is exactly accurately quote unquote, reading or interpreting Nietzsche and their actions if you believe the world is actually behaving according to will to power. Because really what you're actually saying in that statement is that Nietzsche accurately described the world. On the level that people actually read Nietzsche and like tried to implement his ideas in the world, no, I don't think that's ever happened on any sort of organized level. It's always been individuals. And I think there's a reason for that, right? That should be rather obvious that Nietzsche's not writing to the collective or with this grand political program, he's writing to individuals trying to get them to stand aside from all of these matters and to see the bigger picture and detach themselves from their historically contingent values and beliefs for, you know, at least do it for a few seconds, you know, even if you go back to them and, um, try and inhabit other perspectives so that you can gain an understanding of perspective as such gain an idea of value as such. And from that place, all sorts of different directions and goals is possible. But uh, I'm not convinced that there's ever been a Nietzschean like culture or even like 
movement in art, right? Even on that level, I don't know if that really exists because everyone's going to have sort of their different idea of what Nietzsche said or thought. And um, because of the nature of what he said and thought, we're all encouraged to fight each other and not to form into a collective or a group with one another. He did a really good job with insulating or inoculating um, his epigoni against forming this type of cult-like religious structure by constantly saying like, here's my way, where's yours? As to the one way it doesn't exist, um, all of my followers, please depart from me. Um, you repay a teacher badly if you remain a student only. Um, I'd rather be regarded as a clown or a fool than holy. And it's a fear and a terror that I'll be regarded as holy. So um, all that being said, um, I don't think those types of that type of attitude, right? Who does that attract, right? Really, that's all Nietzsche is able to do is select for who he's attracting, who he's appealing to, and the subtle ways in which he's going to sort of push and steer us. And none of that ever really results in have this grand political project or create like a nation state or a culture or a movement or anything like that, or implement, implement my ideas in some way in the world. It's like, how do you do that? Well, by becoming who you are, right? It is ultimately, I, I talk a lot of trash about individualism and there's a lot of reasons for that politically and in a way, because I think it's so cheap the way people talk about individualism, like being an individual is a tough fucking thing. And most people who talk about being individuals are fucking not, they're not individuals, right? Um, there's very few individuals in this world because individual means in divid dual cannot be divided into two. Like you are a coherent, you have brought a pattern. You've given style to your character. That's the Nietzschean term, right? You have given a direction. Uh, you have your yes, no, or straight line or goal. You're this oriented play of forces that is all unified in your the way your drives are oriented and how they're understood and how they're being in, enacted in a non-self-undermining manner. And all these things that most people never even think about, let alone even attempt, let alone ever achieve. And that's, you know, the kind of people who will want to go on that journey is who Nietzsche is writing to. And that's such an intense journey that requires solitude of, uh, what would you say? Solitude of thought or um, being able to carry on these long conversations and interrogations and um, long routes of traveling through ideas within your own inner world and be dependent on your own, your own inner nourishment, right? Um, and not having to check your ideas against the many or anything like that, that it is, I mean, I, I guess I'm just saying ultimately I think the message I get from Nietzsche politically, which is kind of an irony because I'm spending a whole season talking about politics, probably the most important aspect is just the part that he gets from Epicurus. So just like, leave it alone. Right. Um, if you really want happiness in this life, right. And that's kind of what you should be looking for, in my opinion. And so how do you implement that? on a larger scale. If you figure it out, let me know. From Interesting Arm 7160. 
I can't help but be reminded of what Nietzsche set out to do with Christianity. Yet the transvaluation of values is taking place on a global scale and something Nietzsche did not expect. Nietzsche's ideas have spread considerably after the two world wars and is considered a titan in the Western canon. But could we really be seeing the signs of a meta-philosophy coming to fruition? A true transvaluation of all values. Is the revaluation of values happening on a civilization-wide scale? I don't know. I don't like to make claims like that usually. Nietzsche seems to think it's inevitable. And I think my interpretation of him would sort of be that this is a process that is undergone over centuries and that it probably won't even be really perceived by individual generations. And that also, I think it's just sort of self-evident with a number of people who don't believe in God now or who are non-religious. They're no longer seeing the world through these received like religious frameworks in the West. That to me is the biggest evidence that it is something that we're undergoing because the number swells every generation now. And you can just see the Christian world feeling, right? It just does not have the same power that it used to have. Now, what's coming next is an offspring of that, but I think it more closely resembles the last man than anything having to do with Nietzsche's overman or the Dionysian or anything. And that was just sort of his hope that we could maybe take things in a different direction, but I do see us moving in a more utilitarian direction. And that is the revaluation of values, right? Um, just as the overthrow of paganism by Christianity was itself a revaluation. And then you could say there was a revaluation underway in the Renaissance that Nietzsche thinks was reversed by the Reformation and turned in a different direction yet again. So, I mean, it's anyone's guess what could happen, right? Because um, what if we have another type of Renaissance type, ref Renaissance and Reformation interplay sort of reversal, right? I don't know. I really don't. <laughs> I wish I had a more satisfying answer for you. But I think at least in the broad strokes of things in the century since Nietzsche wrote and however many decades and years and change after that century, we definitely have seen a decline of Christianity. So there is a revaluation happening. The nature of what it will be, who knows? From Tsunami714, I discovered Nietzsche's books on your podcast during a time when I was obsessing over a pessimistic view of the capabilities of language. Nietzsche's commentary about how words are only symbols, falsifications, of the feelings, phenomena that inspire them proved to me that other people have poked at the fundamental wall between each and every one of us. We'll never be able to actually get inside each other's heads. My question is, did Nietzsche ever try to explore a higher form of communication or an enhanced language? Is the aesthetic expression of that tragic limitation the closest we can get to expressing the primordial pain of the conscious individual? Well, with the primordial pain and contradiction, you're, you know, invoking the birth of tragedy there. Where Nietzsche does suggest drama, the Greek drama, as communicating something that I don't think can really be communicated by language. And he doesn't really say it in those terms. But what else would be the point of a religious ritual if you could simply communicate it by language, right? 
And part of that is because it's the birth of tragedy out of the spirit of music. It's that the words and the language are carried upon the power of music, which Nietzsche sees in that period as this almost sort of metaphysical force. It's more, it's the only form of expression that's pure will. He's getting a lot of that from Schopenhauer. And the deeper meaning of that is that music is pure emotional content. It doesn't have any form. Or it doesn't have any image. And when lyrics are added that sort of describe an image, Nietzsche's point is that these are always earsots. They're always added on. They're always superficial. They're always on top. It's always the words trying to be carried up on the wave of the power of the music, which is in itself only tonality. It's only relationship between tones. It's only harmony. He says the world of harmony is just incomparable to anything else in any of the other arts. And so I think forms of art in general you could say, are non-linguistic forms of communication. And tragedy, especially because of all these factors. For one, it, it brings together these two art forces, and it has a religious significance or meaning to it. It's imparting a meaning on the level of a sort of a world feeling, right? The pessimism of strength of the ancient Greeks, that's what it's sort of imparting and making you part of by having you identify with the character of Dionysus as he's tragically killed and dismembered. But remember, Dionysus is always resurrected again in some other form, in the form of another tragic hero. And the through beauty, this cruel and uh, what would you call it, sort of this cyclical cruelty of life, its primordial pain and contradiction is blessed in some some sense by being elevated to the higher Olympian middle world of art, right? And so that's just one example of how this could happen. But I think in general, art and religion, they originate from this myth-making inclination or tendency in humankind, which is an attempt to um, communicate, I think, just as much as language. It's that, it's this, in some sense, it springs from emotional communication instead of rational. That language is rationalistic communication, necessarily, um, even though certain types of poetry might t attempt to play with that, right? But that you're necessarily communicating concepts. You're necessarily communicating by means of general category whenever you use language. Um, you're therefore communicating a conceptual meaning. And Nietzsche, it's very interesting what he says about this in on truth and lies in the non-moral sense, how Every word is sort of like a symbol that it originates from an expression that was originally emotional, but over time, as it becomes conventionally used, the word just comes to signify or symbolize or just merely indicate the concept, but the emotional meaning becomes sort of diffused or it wears away. It's like a coin that's lost its um, its embossment or whatever, I don't know if that's the right term. In any case, um, so yeah, that aspect of language as being sort of rational and communicating within the conceptual world, within the abstract world, the world of categories and images and form, right? Whereas art, in a way that is most purely expressed in music, and no other form of art really comes close to the purity of music in this respect, according to Nietzsche, art communicates emotional meaning. And we could see myth as sort of like the common ancestor of both religious 
and artistic expression. And also in the sense that a lot of the earliest artistic expression was religious and they were sort of inseparable, right? Um, in some sense that the earliest types of artistic expression were religious in the form of the chant of the song of the carving of idols and fetishes and so on and so forth. And so I think that we already have a form of communication that is not linguistic and it exists in art and religion. Um, I would say it exists in religion where religion is most artistic and it exists in art where art is most religious or spiritual, where it's actually concerned with not art as mirror entertainment, but it's concerned with um, breaching down into those sort of existential problems of the human condition and, and speaking to that and resonating with the individual on some level that feels meaningful. And that in art, what art actually, I really staunchly disagree with people like Roland Barthes. Um, I don't know exactly how his name is pronounced, but he's French, so I think that's how it's pronounced. The guy who wrote Death of the Author, right? I completely disagree with that because what's actually happening in art is communication. You are communing with someone who could even be long dead, but if you get an emotional reaction out of some art that you're engaging with, that person who's long dead has made you feel what they felt. Now, you can't exactly know on an objective, rational level that you're feeling what they felt, right? In the sense that Wittgenstein talks about with the nature of sensation and how sensation is inevitably private and yet the expression of sensation is public and so these become in, in some way the expression then the word the signifier that you're using is conveying not anything about your subjective experience but merely a series of conventions around that subjective experience so all of these problems still obtain with what i'm trying to communicate to you right now that being said um i think Art, in some sense, I'll even get a little religious about the question. It requires the faith that these emotional states actually can bridge the gap. That's And art is just irrational enough. Artists are just irrational enough to think things like that, to not have any regard for the hard problem of consciousness or the theory of mind, basis of our theory of mind, or any of that cognitive neuroscience crap. If you're an artist, you want to make people feel things experience the sublime feelings that can't actually be expressed in words, right? And somehow transmit them to others through a form of mimesis. That's the way Socrates talks about the power of poetry to the rhapsode in Ion, right? And so um, in that sense, Socrates talks about art like it's just sort of divine possession, spirit possession, and I suppose I'm saying that that's what it is. <laughs> so um, I think that is the other language for talking about art. And I don't think, just to answer your question, I don't think Nietzsche could create a, quote, higher language so long as it's actually linguistic, maybe a higher form of communication. And I think Nietzsche does believe that art is actually a higher form of communication and that it's in the artistic aspects of his work where he thinks he's perhaps actually breached through that wall of language. Um and through artistic or poetic techniques like the oxymoron or through, um, you know, through fictionalized or dramatic narrative uh, or through just actually the literal poetry that he includes. So that would be my answer. I think the other language that you can use to communicate is art.
from Alexandrian Fractals. Nietzsche is no self-help guru. He is a thinker interested in observing, examining, and deconstructing what is. That said, one can't deny that there is something of a personal element to his work. He frequently addresses his readers, his free spirits, directly, and a non-trivial chunk of his work does engage with the question of what it would mean to live one's life fully, wisely, fruitfully. With all that in mind, what are your thoughts on how one is supposed to respond in real life to Nietzsche's philosophy? I suppose it's a question that will depend entirely on the individual and thus be basically unanswerable in the general sense, but still. How have you personally responded to Nietzsche's work? How has critically engaging with his worldview changed your life? What is one to do with the profound deconstruction of society and modern man, that sick animal that he presents to us? Well, I've talked about this a fair deal on the podcast already, but a large part of my life has involved, I mean, I talked about it in this very Q&A, right? Has involved making decisions as an artist that actually make no financial or utilitarian sense. And Nietzsche has helped me make sense of what exactly I'm doing in my life, right? That there are things more valuable in this life than seeking after material comfort or, you know, uh, educational attainment in the academy or advancement in some bureaucracy or meritocratic structure. That everything that the, what would you say, the easy or easily laid out paths for me offered, I didn't really find palatable. And on the other hand, it's not like I've exactly gotten rich or successful or anything like that. And I don't even really want to get famous um, because I really believe in the the dangers and fame as somebody like Lao Tzu would lay out and somebody like Diogenes would always avoid, right? And so I have a lot of that streak in me. And, you know, yet here I am doing something like trying to have a successful podcast or trying to be a musician, which sort of requires fame. And so that in itself is sort of living dangerously, right? Because I I know that there are aspects of the life that I live that would make me... There are some forms of unhappiness that I'll take. There are some forms of privation or having to renounce certain things that I'll take in exchange for sort of a higher goal, right? And having that understanding and having that groundedness in what I'm doing has been immensely helpful to me because I did go on tour with my band. I started this whole underground band thing when I was like 20 years old and it was before I had a good grip on Nietzsche, but in a way it kind of like kept me going during the the dark times. Um, What else? I mean, I think Nietzsche is very good for getting over things like, what would you say? Getting over like guilt getting over shame, getting over a sense of obligation to like traditional morals or religious duties. A lot of these things that kind of keep the bound spirits from experimenting, right? From going on such a dangerous experiment, like, no, I should be productive. I should pursue something that creates economic value. I should, you know, have children because my parents want me to, I should remain within the religion of my family all, or I should think what everyone else thinks about the current thing. I should express the same opinions that everyone else expresses. 
Um, you know, and, you know, also in addition to that, in telling you that in showing you all the ways in which your conscience tries to make you a bound spirit and telling you that really there is no objective established absolute truth to stop you from um, going on your own journey. But even on top of that, that you shouldn't, it shouldn't even be a journey in opposition to what's around you, you know, the, the collective morality or the current modern um, trends in morality or, or in thinking or in the way we see the world or whatever it might be. You don't have to be at war with that. Nietzsche says where one cannot love, one should pass by. And that in the flies in the marketplace aphorism in Zarathustra, it's not your destiny to be a, a fly swat, right? Don't go around like basically swatting the flies in the internet comment section, right? <laughs> it's a good way to put it. Or you, when everyone's giving their opinions, their standard ready-made mass-produced opinions at a party, you don't have to give your opinion. You can just stand aside a little, right? You don't have to get super invested in all of these like cultural struggles or things like the great moral issues of our time. You can actually just step back from them. And and uh, Nietzsche in some ways shows us the way by saying, I'm going to be very invested in the political and moral questions of 2,500 years ago, more so than my own time. I think that's great. And I think that's, to me, uh, Nietzsche also turned my eyes toward the long term and the, not the eternal, because nothing's eternal, but, you know, there's so many works of art and literature and poetry and music, although that's much more recent within the last couple hundred years, but over thousands of years, people have been part of this cultural dialogue in sort of and this moral and philosophical dialogue. And we've produced all these just incredible ideas and religions and incredible journeys of art and storytelling and narrative and um, just I don't know. There's so much available to you. The world really is your oyster now because we have greater access to it than we've ever had with, you know, the internet and things of that nature. You can go on Project Gutenberg and find pretty much any book that's in the public domain, right? It's been uploaded for you. You can go on YouTube and you can just type in any classical piece and you'll find some symphony that's performed it and their performance is uploaded for you to listen to. And you can go read the poetry of Dante and Virgil and you're not like somebody in the 1500s where just the fact that you would know how to read would be very uncommon and you might not be able to read Latin and there probably isn't a translation into your vernacular tongue, right? Uh, all these things, right? Um, <clears throat> we have so many advantages in so many ways and that's not really the point I was making, more so just that one of those advantages is that you, we can kind of, every person has access to this vast tapestry of culture from the entire world, not just the West, that you can sort of examine all the beautiful, most fine parts of that tapestry. And you start to see then that what happens to be popular artistically in the moment is not that important. What happens to be currently the issues that affect us in our day when you read the histories of all these different peoples and empires like there's always been like partisan factions and there's always been the struggle between the rich and the poor like the, your time isn't really any special and no one's gonna like really remember um the struggles between if you're in america the democrats and the republicans 
in a thousand years. In all likelihood, they will not, right? Um, it'll be like the war, the riots between the blues and the reds in Byzantium. Does anyone emotionally invested in that anymore? Um, I guess this was, those were two sports teams, but they also became like sort of like political parties as well. It was a very weird development. You look up the, the internecine fighting in Byzantium between the blues and the greens. Did I say blues and reds? But look that up sometime if you want to be amused. Anyway, I guess I'm just trying to say Nietzsche his model of being an untimely thinker has really made an impact on me of turning my eye away from the concerns of my own lifetime and my own time and realizing, trying to like look at the bigger picture. Um, and I feel like I'm not getting this across very well, but to sort of see like how even the, I don't know, like the cultural productions of my own time, right. Um, the ones that will really stand the test of time will be like very few of them. And it will only be the best of the best of the best, right? Like we don't remember, we don't read every author who wrote or had output from ancient Greece. A lot of, because, you know, the majority of it is lost. It doesn't get copied or reprinted. It gets destroyed for various reasons over the years. And so the stuff that gets preserved is really only the most important stuff that was always preserved for the most amount of time. And even I'm sure there were it's just statistically impossible that there aren't thousands, hundreds of thousands of great works of art and culture that were just sort of destroyed and lost to the ages and that we'll never see or hear about, right? And I don't know, it's just that view of being on high, looking at society from that mountaintop perspective to the extent that you can manage it to me is an inspiration and uplifting because for one, it turns my goals and my attention to doing something more in that realm than what everyone else seems to be trying to do on social media, which is just get eyeballs and clicks and do clickbait. And I even engage in that to some extent, like on YouTube, just to like grow my audience. But uh, there's something about me, just my constitute, I'm constitutionally, it's anathema to me. I don't, I don't like it. And it's because it's not really my goal just to have like, to be popular in the moment. Um, and I don't think momentary popularity is something that's going to matter in the end run. And I, so like for me, for example, um, I think, you know, it's way more important for me to just try and make the best music I can make and write the best books I can write. And, um, offer something in this podcast that's the best like exegesis of Nietzsche that I can offer. I've got all these creative pursuits and I just try and do them as excellently as I can. And I, in some sense, can like let go by the fact that I know that whatever, if I even have a legacy historically, um, in all likelihood I won't, right? It'll just be washed away with the sands of time, um, you know, when the hourglass is flipped over yet again, and this, the spirits of upheaval tear down society yet again, as Nietzsche is always worried about. Um, but all you can do is strive and realize that it doesn't really matter what happens in your own lifetime, that all the best men are posthumous men anyway. Nietzsche was a posthumous man. No one gave a shit about Nietzsche when he was writing. I mean, some people did, but not really very many, right? And, um, if Nietzsche had written about like contemporary issues and things like that, he would have been forgotten. It's realizing that the people who are all great are the ones who are 
turn their eye from the timely into the untimely. And that's what Machiavelli says, it's what Rousseau says, it's what all the great philosophers say, is that the great ones are always like, I'm not really concerned with what's going on in my time, I'm going to address myself to the ancients, to the old masters, to all the greats of every age, they will be my judges. Uh, not just, you know, whatever the convention, the conventional wisdom is now, who cares about that? So that's been very helpful for me as well. I don't know if anything I've described is like self-help, but it's just things that have like changed my perspective from reading Nietzsche over the years, very gradually and slowly and affected my, my outlook in a very like subtle background sort of way. But that, I mean, that's all, those are the most important things in life, right? It's the little things. That does it for this half of the Q and A. Uh, so, if I didn't get to you and you had a question that you asked on Reddit or somewhere else in a Q and A thread, likely I will be getting to your question next week in Q and A volume number seven. And so, you know, don't fret if I didn't get to you because you're on the list. The thing is, some people did ask some very long, complicated questions. A bunch of questions contained in there. I don't want to divide the episode again. Hopefully that won't be necessary. Um, there was one guy who asked me like eight or nine questions in one question. So maybe I'll just do that. Like I'll treat it like a lightning round and give him a bunch of really short answers to all the little constituent parts of his question. I don't know. I haven't quite decided yet, but thank you everybody for asking these and um, thanks for listening. Uh, I'll see you next time. If you enjoyed the Nietzsche podcast or found it helpful, you can visit us and support the show at patreon.com slash untimely reflections. The link is in the description or just share the show with any of your friends that you think might enjoy it or on social media. Thank you for your support.